Hey, my name is Chad. I'm so happy to be with you this morning. Uh, I, I have lots I want to share with you. It's, it's fun to get to finish up this sermon series that Pastor Julio's been on, this idea of going great, the Great Commission and the Great Commandment and how we are between the two and how we're always trying to keep those two things in our perspective, in our view. As we finish up today, we're going we're gonna to attempt to really blast through a lot of scripture. We're going to look at a, a really a 30,000 foot view of Paul's missionary journeys. And, and I hope you can, can pay attention and stay with me because I'm going to try to cover a lot of content. Uh, I've used the content for this morning's sermon for uh, a training that typically takes an hour to an hour and a half. And we're going to try to do it in like 12 to 15 minutes. So, uh, you know, if I get to speaking too fast, somebody just wave out there and be like, slow down and I'll try. Let's open up with a word of prayer and we'll get into our sermon this morning. Father God, we just come before you and we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your grace made evident in our life. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for calling us your own. We pray that today, Father, your spirit would speak through your word and that God would speak into our hearts and change us to become more like you. We love you, Jesus, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> to look at the life of Paul, we need to go backwards just a little bit and look at how Jesus invested himself in the 12 disciples that he poured himself into. Three years of ministry, and Jesus spent most of the time with these 12 guys. And, uh, and they learned a lot from Jesus. They, learned to, to, they went from being fishermen to fishers of men, right? They caught, they caught fish for a living. Now, I don't know about you guys, but that's not typically considered one of those top tier kind of jobs, right? So Jesus took some, some normal people, some regular guys, and turned them into some pretty extraordinary people doing things that we look at and marvel at. And so they, they, I, want to, I want to talk a little bit what they saw. They, they saw Jesus walk through this life. They saw his grace made known to the people around him. He was the fulfillment of all of Mosaic law, and yet he did it in a way that made people feel loved and welcomed and forgiven, not in a way that felt judged and, and, and exposed and, and, uh, and, and, and thrown out. And so they learned from what it meant to share the good news of hope for the hurting. They learned how to trust God to heal the sick and, an in, and the injured. They, they, they saw the power of the Holy Spirit moving in him so they could see that his teachings were not just words, but they had meaning and depth and power. And so between the movement of the Holy Spirit in their life and the teaching of Jesus that these guys cling to, they knew no boundaries. In the book of Acts, we see unbelievable things like Peter's shadow falling on people and them being healed. And people taking cloths that he prayed for and taking to people and people being healed. So, so they saw so much in Jesus' life, but were they able to pass on what they learned directly from Jesus to subsequent generations of believers? Were they able to make it go beyond them? Because that really is the test of a disciple that's been, that's been given a task to go and make disciples. The quality of those next generations dictates the future of this movement. Right? You understand what I'm saying? If, if they don't pass it on well, then the whole thing ends with them. And so this is a really interesting thing. Are there examples in scripture of third and fourth generation disciples that go beyond the disciples themselves? People who learned and acted like Jesus that never walked with Jesus? Well, the obvious answer is yes. There's actually many examples. But there's one that really stands out among them all. One that just seemed to take this gospel and it changed him radically. And we meet this guy really quickly in the, in the book of Acts. He's actually not a good guy when we meet him. They call him the, the, the Pharisee named Saul, right? And Saul has this interaction with Jesus, a revelation on the road to Damascus that changed everything he knew. And he knew a lot. 
He knew the entire Old Testament. He knew the law of Moses backwards and forwards. And he lived according to the Pharisaical law that said he was righteous by the way that he lived. The things that he did in his life made him deserving of God's love. And so when he heard about this Jesus, it infuriated him. It made him so angry that somebody would say that you can come to God without having to live by the law of Moses. Because everything about him said the law of Moses was where it started. And yet Jesus was the perfect fulfillment of that law. So in this interaction on the, on the road to Damascus, everything is redefined for Paul. Everything is redefined in his life. And all of a sudden, all that he knew about the law was transformed in the light of this Jesus. And then who did he go to? How did he learn the specifics of Jesus' teachings? How did he find out what Jesus had said when he said all the things he did in his three years? Well, he went and visited with some people. Who were they? The disciples, right? We have three or four different times when Paul goes and spends significant time in Jerusalem underneath the, the leadership of James and Peter and John, these different guys, they interacted with Paul many times throughout the years. And in the end, Paul's writings really preserve so much of what they taught. Isn't it interesting that that next generation of believer in the life of Paul really gave us much of, if not all, most of the New Testament that we have. You take away three gospels, first, second, third, John, some argument over Hebrews, and the rest of the, the book has been written by, by the apostle Paul and his disciples, Luke. Luke wrote half the New Testament just in Luke and Acts. So, this, this gospel captivated Paul in such a powerful way that it redefined his life. And what we're gonna look at in the next few minutes is his, his, his living out of how it impacted him. And we're gonna jump to the end. So at the, at the end of his third journey, he's, uh, he's in, the, in the city of Ephesus and he writes to the church that some friends of his, he sent some friends to plant the church in Rome. He writes this letter to the church in Rome, his friends that are there. And, and this is what he says at the end of that letter. It's, it's, it's uh, Romans chapter 15. We're gonna start in verse 17. And it says this, it says, therefore I glory in Christ Jesus and my service to God. I, did not, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I've said and done. By the power of signs and wonders through the power of the Holy Spirit from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I've been hindered often in coming to you. But now there's no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Many people think of Romans as one of the most theologically packed books in all the New Testament. And it's interesting to find in this chapter that the, the point of the end of Romans is that, by the way, I'm gonna come visit you soon and I'd like for you to assist me on my way as I go. What do you think that means? <laughs> it's a fundraising letter. <laughs> so he's telling them how the Jews and Romans should get along and all that kind of stuff, how the Christians should act in Rome. And by the way, raise some money because I'm gonna be coming through soon. That's kind of the letter. But there's some things in here that find, we find really interesting that we need to look at over the next few minutes. Let's try to figure out how Paul can make a statement like this. From Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, there's no longer any place left for me to work. 
He said that he has fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ in these regions. Let's, there's a map here that doesn't, it might have a bubble on it, but let's look at this map. I wanna show you this from Jerusalem to Illyricum. Jerusalem is all the way down here at the very bottom corner. You see it down there? And Illyricum is all the way up by Italy, right across the water from Italy. The span between the two places is 2,500 miles. That's the same distance as from here to Seattle. Okay, now remember he didn't fly. He, uh, he, he walked most of the time. He may have had a horse or a donkey or something, but, but imagine that trip. If we were to set out from here today, how long would it take us to get there? Okay, Paul did it three times, three times in a period of 15 years. Now, another thing to keep in mind is that space from Illyricum to Jerusalem is one of the most, uh, is the most populated area of the Roman Empire outside of Italy. Between 20 and 25 million people live in this space. That's about the same population of the, the, the state of Texas. Texas is 26 million. So let's keep this in mind. How does Paul say that in his ministry career, roughly 15 years, that he could go from Jerusalem to Illyricum, 2,500 miles, 25 million people, and say there's no longer any room left for me to work? Think about that statement. Well, in the next few minutes, I wanna look and see what he meant by it. The first thing that we need to notice is that Paul was not focused on planting a church. Sometimes we get really stuck on what a church means. He was, he was focused on planting the church. Now there's a difference, a church and the church. The church is made up of people. The people are the church. Where they meet is inconsequential, right? So when he writes to the church in Galatia, it's many small churches that are there. It's not one church, you know, the big building in the middle of the town of Galatia. Galatia is a region. There's four different towns that Paul ministered in there, and he's writing to all of them at once. So to the church of Galatia was for a lot of people. It wasn't just for one space, one little location. And so we need to see ourselves first as something different than a church. We are part of the church, the church of Christ, which is a global movement, not the domination of the church of Christ. It's the global movement of all believers that follow Jesus is the church. It's the group of Christ followers. We can see in Acts 2 that the church, the people met both in the, in the temple at times and by house to house, from house to house. They met in different locations. The next thing that we see is the church is not content to stay a small group of believers. The churches explode into whole regions and areas and cities. And so if you think about Acts chapter two, we see the, the Holy Spirit moving at Pentecost. And at the end of Peter's sermon, it says the people were cut to the heart. They said, what must we do to be saved? And Paul told them, be, repent and be baptized. And it says that he gave them many other teachings of Jesus. And it says, in that day, 3,000 were added to their number. So the church went from around 120 to 500, something like that maybe is the space, to 3,000 more in a day. In all their time with Jesus, they hadn't seen an, ex an explosive growth of disciples like that. The disciples were able to innovate really fast to make up how, we, how do we care for and disciple 3,000 new believers, but it didn't just stop there. At the end of the same chapter in verse 47, it says that the numbers were being added to daily, those who were being saved. The 3,000 was just the beginning. But if you go one or two more chapters, you get the beginning of Acts chapter five. It's the follow-up to the story that ends chapter four. And Paul is preaching, and Paul, Peter and John are preaching in Solomon's colonnade and they get arrested. But at the beginning of chapter five, it says that 4,000 men believed that day, just counting the men. Some historians estimate that the believers' numbers at this point, by, by Acts chapter five, that there may have been as many as 15 to 20,000 believers in Jerusalem. Within a few years of Jesus' death, 15 to 20,000, well, do you know that the population of Jerusalem was only 50,000? So 20,000 out of 50,000. 
You have a high percentage of population now. Everybody in Jerusalem knew about Jesus, every single one. And everyone had to make a decision to accept him or reject him. Where was Saul on that, by the way? He's on the rejection side, right? He was furious about this Jesus, as were many other teachers of the law and Pharisees and Sadducees. We know that because of the way they treated Jesus. We also know that because of the way they treated the apostles. We read in this, in this little section of scripture that James the apostle was beheaded. He's gone. It's not James the, James the brother of John. It's, it's the other James. Did I, did I get that confused? I think I'm right. James, the guy that we meet later, is Jesus' brother James. James, the brother of John, dies early in Acts. So, okay, there we go. Whew. Just in case there was too much confusion. So there's a high population of gospel movement. So this is what happens. You guys know the story. I'm going to just run through this really quick. Um, here's how it goes. So, so um, Paul comes on the scene. He goes house to house, pulling out Christians. And, and we, we first meet Paul because he's holding the coats of some men who are killing a believer. His name is Stephen. Stephen is stoned to death. And because of the persecution of Stephen, it opens up persecution for Christians all over, really at the hands of Paul. And so the Christians in Jerusalem scatter throughout the region. It says that they go throughout Judea and Samaria all the way as far as Antioch. So if you go with me, we're going to skip a couple of verses that I have in my notes here. But if you go with me, to Acts chapter 11, verse 19 through 20, this is what it says. It says, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, they traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word among Jews. Some of them, however, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks as well, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And so I want to start showing you these maps. We're going to call it seven major movements that we can find in the book of Acts. And the first one happens out of Jerusalem. And so if you look at this map, you've got this, this red bubble on the side. The gospel comes out of Jerusalem and goes as far as Antioch and Cyprus. Cyprus is the little island that you see off the, off the coast there. And so Cyprus is where Barnabas is from. So it's no, no mystery why Paul and Barnabas leave from Antioch and go to Cyprus because they're going to, to a place where the gospel's already been. So, so I want you to see this. The gospel immediately explodes onto the scene in a very short amount of time. People throughout this region hear the gospel. And so I wanna introduce another term that I think is really important. And I meant to do this a minute ago. I'm already getting confused here. So the, the, the idea is that a, a gospel movement like we're seeing in, in Jerusalem, the best way to define it is a saturating gospel movement, a saturating gospel movement. I really think this is a simple way of defining the church and its responsibility. The responsibility is to saturate a region with the gospel. And so this idea of saturation, saturation means that everyone within a region has to make a decision regarding who is Jesus. And the gospel means that those who respond to this good news have the right and the responsibility to tell others and multiply into near areas. And so those near areas are really important. What is, the, what is the mission field that God has called every single believer? Every single believer, if you're a brand new believer that came to Christ this morning, or if you've been a Christian for 30, 40, 50 years, you have the same mission. That mission is to reach the people that God brings into your life every day, day in and day out. Not necessarily your strangers, but we're talking about the oikos. It's the people that you see day in and day out. I challenge the first service and I challenge you, take a, take a piece of paper, a blank piece of paper sometime this week, Put your name in the middle and write out everyone that you know. Family, friends, coworkers, classmates, everyone you know. And then go back through there and think about the ones that you know who are close to Jesus and the ones who you know are not. And start praying for the ones who are not. 
This is a really simple way to see what is your mission field. It's the place where God has put you right now. And you don't have to go to the ends of the earth yet, but you start right here. This is the mission field that every one of us has. Begin praying for the lost people that you see every day in and out of your life. So this idea of a saturating gospel movement is what Paul was beginning. It was the same thing that the disciples launched in Jerusalem. It's the same thing we saw Jesus do. Remember, Jesus went throughout all the towns and villages of Galilee. It was a saturating gospel movement that Jesus did. He even sends them out in, Mark, in Luke 10 and Matthew 10. He sends them out and tells them, find the person of peace and stay with them and teach them how to be uh, the persons of peace in their own villages. So Jesus has launched these saturating gospel movements the disciples launch it, and then now we're going to see how Paul does it. So the first one happens out of, out of Jerusalem. The next one at the hands of Paul happens out of Antioch. They plant churches all around that region. They go throughout the, the, the island of Cyprus, and then they move on up into the, the areas of Galatia. Um, and so we're going to skip over Acts 13. is where they send out Paul and Barnabas, but we're going to jump to the end of Acts 13. They're already in Galatia. Paul and Barnabas go to this little town called Pisidian Antioch. If you remember, they spend time with the synagogue. There's three other towns, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. When they're in Derby, they have, when they're in Lystra, it's where Timothy is from. When they're in Lystra, the, the people get so angry at him that they stone Paul to the point of death. They think that he's dead. And it says this little, little verse that the, the believers gather around him and they pray for him and he gets up and walks back into the town. You have to say, who are these believers? Where did they come from? These are Galatian believers. These are new believers that are brand new. They're, they're from like, they're maybe from their Pisidian uh, Antioch, maybe they're from Iconium, or maybe they're actually from the little town right there that were so angry at Paul that they, they tried to kill him. Maybe these new believers with faith gather around Paul, pray, he gets up and walks. It, it doesn't even say resurrection, but they thought he was dead. That's a pretty rough place to be. Again, there's this verse. I want you to see it right here. It's in Acts chapter 13, verse 47 through 49. And here's how it goes. It says, this is what the Lord has commanded us. I've made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and they honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed to eternal life believed. And look at 49. And the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. The whole region. It wasn't just a church Paul was planting. He was planting the church and the church began to expand throughout the entire region. It wasn't because Paul was able to be beamed into all the homes around Galatia. It's because his disciples could go to every different place of the, of the area. Everyone had relatives in other cities and towns and they were going to share with people that were important to them this gospel that redefined how they viewed life. So we remember the story. That was the end of the first journey. They go back to Jerusalem and then they set out on the second journey. There's some more stuff that happens, but we're just gonna jump from there. Paul and Barnabas go different directions. Barnabas takes John Mark, goes back to Cyprus. Paul takes Silas and goes back through this area all the way from Antioch. They take the land route rather than taking the, the boat this time. They walk around through the Galatia and it says that they visit the churches of Cappadocia, which we don't even know where those churches came from. We have to assume they're probably from the Antioch stream. And then they go into Galatia and their plan is to go into Asia there, but it says the Holy, Holy Spirit prevents them from going into Asia. They go north to go into Bithynia, but also the Holy Spirit tells them not to go there. Instead, they get a dream that says, come over to Macedonia. So they go across the water there, right there at Ephesus, up above Ephesus, they go across the water. There's Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, these three towns where they stop. Well, there's really great stories in each one. We're gonna talk about the one in Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, it says, the, the Acts says they spent three Sabbaths, three Saturdays. And then the Jews of Thessalonica got so mad at Paul, they ran him out of town. But listen to this. If you go with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, 
you have this incredible description of this church that he, he planted in less than three weeks. Three Sabbaths, three Saturdays, at least 15 days, maybe as much as 20, okay? And this is what it says. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. So you became a model to the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Those are regional terms. They became models for the believers. And the Lord's message rang out to you, from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Everywhere. Paul writes this letter. He's in Corinth. So you already know the story. He got run out of Thessalonica. He goes down to Athens and spends a little bit of time. And then he goes to Corinth. And when he gets to Corinth, he hears stories about the Thessalonian faith. It got there before he did. He said, so there's no need for me to say anything about it that people already have heard. And so unbelievably, the, the, the message of the gospel moves so quickly from Thessalonica down to Corinth that when Paul gets to Corinth, he finds out that everyone already knows about the story. That's a pretty powerful testimony, isn't it? It's pretty fast how the gospel can move through entire regions. And so uh, uh, we've got that bubble there. We have this Thessalonican group, this, this, this powerful movement that goes out in all of Macedonia and Achaia. And of course, the next one is going to be Corinth. And so he spends a year and a half in Corinth. He spends a lot of time working there. And if you just, again, really quickly, maybe 2 Corinthians 1.1, 1, 1, you have this story where it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church in Corinth, together with his people throughout Achaia, the whole region. There's people of God throughout the whole region. So the impact of Paul's time in Corinth is that all the people are, are impacted with the gospel. Again, saturating gospel movement, right? So the, the people are all making decisions who they believe this Jesus is. And, uh, and so then that's the end of the second journey. Paul goes back to Jerusalem again. Then he makes his way back through the whole thing, walking again, bringing some people with him. And now he gathers, I'd say his, his, it's like his, his best team. He gathers his superstars and they plant the church in Ephesus. And so Ephesus is right there in the center of Asia. It's the place where the Holy Spirit prevented them from going the first journey. The third journey is almost entirely focused on this mission, on, on planting this church at Ephesus. And listen to this. This is uh, Acts chapter 19, 8 through 10. And it says, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate and they refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and he had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years. Listen to this last description. So all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. That particular province had roughly 10 million people in it. Two years, 10 million people, they all heard the word of the Lord. How does Paul say things like that? Is it because he walked through the entire province or is it because again, he had confidence that his disciples were making disciples who were going and making disciples all throughout the region? All right, saturating gospel movement. So the last one is that Paul sends out a whole team of mission, missionaries. Uh, you find their names listed in, in Romans chapter 16. He, he just says, greetings to all my friends who are with us in Ephesus. And it's a whole bunch of people. And they all went to Rome and they planted the church under the leadership of Priscilla and Aquila. Just an interesting side note is that Priscilla's name is always listed first. It's just an interesting thing. We could have a really good discussion about why that might be. But uh, Priscilla was definitely a leader and mover in the early church. And so this church in Rome gets launched by this group. And so Paul never goes to Rome when he writes the book of Romans. The Roman church is exploding without Paul ever being there. 
He goes there later in his life. But there also, there's a book in the New Testament called Colossians. Have you guys read Colossians? Okay, Paul never goes to Colossae as well. He doesn't go there. He has a disciple that goes and plants the church of, uh, in Colossae, and he sends a letter to them encouraging them. And so amazingly, Paul not only shows that what Jesus was doing in Galilee can be done in other places, he shows that it can be replicated by the people that he's trained and led and developed. Okay, so here's, here's the summary. We're out of time. Acts 15, uh, Romans 15, 24, when he says, I plan to go to Spain and have you assist me on my way, he says, I no longer have space to work in these areas. Three journeys, 15 years, 2,500 miles, 20 to 25 million people. How? How long have we been here? How long has Calvary been around? 62 years. Now, I'm just asking, but do you think that there are people in our region, which we just might say the Rio Grande Valley, that have not heard the gospel? Why is that? It's because church has become a place. It's where people go. It's ceased to be the people because we go everywhere. Julio told us last week that this is the priesthood of all believers, that, that Christians believe that we are connected to Christ as our mediator. You don't need me or Julio or anyone else to mediate between you and Jesus. You can go directly to him. Every single one of you, if you call Jesus your Lord, you can go directly to Christ. You don't need us. The reason we gather is not so that you can get Jesus. The reason we gather is so we can encourage each other. We can strengthen one another. We can see God move because all of you are priests. You're all pastors if we use daily, today's language. You pastor someone, you shepherd people in your life and God has called you to do more than sit and listen. We desperately need the whole body of Christ to do the work of the gospel. It can't be a few leaders that speak to you weekly. If there was 1,500 disciples, we have 1,500 members at Calvary, 1,500 pastors at Calvary that were going and sharing the gospel, how do you think that would transform the valley? Jesus started with 11, Paul had eight. We got 1,500 people that claim Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I think the problem is that we like Jesus as our Savior, save us from our sin, save us from hell, but we don't like him as Lord. We don't want to put him in the center, we want to put him somewhere accessible. So we can live our lives just like we want and say, well, I need help, Jesus, help me. But normally I'm good, I'm good, I don't need you right now. That's not the gospel. Is something else. The gospel transforms our affections, transforms who we are. It transforms our de decision making and it empowers every single one of us to be fully formed agents of gospel reconciliation and, and gospel transformation. As we finish, we've been talking about this for so many weeks now. We've talked about this simple path to disciple-making movements. We've showed you that if we start, it's just like Jesus did, it says that Jesus guided his disciples to, to go and share the gospel. He guided them to go and share the gospel. He helped them to, to grow, those new believers to grow in their faith and to gather together for the purpose of guiding new believers to do what? To go and share the gospel so they could grow new believers and teach them how to gather so that they can guide new believers to do what? Go and share the gospel. We have to connect the people of God with the mission of God. If we don't do those two things, we're gonna end with this generation. If the disciples hadn't shared, we would never have known of Jesus. 
And every generation, yours and mine included, has the responsibility of reaching their generation for the gospel and the next. If we don't reach the next generation, guess what? They won't know Jesus. We have a task, church. You remember a few years ago, we wrote a document called the 2020 Vision and our goal was to see God double the number of Christians in the Rio Grande Valley by the end of 2020. It's about 60,000 believers that we're praying for, 60,000. We've got 300 maybe in the room right now, maybe 250. How are we gonna see 60,000 new people come to faith? It's because we need every follower of Jesus taking the gospel to the place that God has called them, to their, to their oikos, to their household, to their network of relationship and becoming a saturating gospel movement that extends beyond this place, that extends far beyond these people. We take the gospel everywhere he sends us. I'm so thankful for Calvary. God has, has moved inside this church. God has moved inside this people for so long. And I expect him to continue. And I expect it to explode. Because we have the tools now. If you don't know what to do, we can help you. If you're hurting and broken, you're like, I've got nothing to offer, we can help you. Jesus can give you everything you need to move forward. He took a murderer named Paul and made him an apostle. He took a fisherman named Peter and made him an apostle. He took all kinds of broken people throughout scripture and made them powerful because they trusted in faith that he can use them. If we have the same conversation, the same hope that they had, this Jesus is with us and he's never gonna forsake us. Would you stand as we pray? <sighs> Father God, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you for how you've moved these many thousands of years. We thank you for the many chains and links of the gospel that, that bring it to us today, Father. We pray that our link would, would hold firm, that we would not be the weak link for the next generation. We pray, God, that you would raise up a body of believers in this place that would become a saturating gospel movement in the valley. And that, Father, we would see thousands upon thousands of gospel messengers sent and tens of thousands, God, come to faith. We pray that you would extend your kingdom to the lost in our region, the lost in our families, our friends, our networks of faith. And we pray, God, that you would become mighty inside them. We pray, God, that this would be a catalyzing moment for our church. We decide it's no longer same old, same old. But Father, we want to put you at the center of our lives and follow you wherever you lead. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.